Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team. And Suzanne, welcome to 2021. We made it to the year. Uh, We're looking forward to another year of podcasts. uh, But today, we're actually going to jump back to the end of 2020 to discuss a recent Supreme Court decision that impacts many group health plans to the extent they use pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. And that case also has to do with ERISA preemption, to give you a fun idea of what we're talking about today. So Suzanne, before we get into the details of the case and the lawsuit in the Supreme Court, let's just start at a basic level with a description of pharmacy benefit managers. Right, right. And happy New Year's. Um, And uh, of course, our our, um, audience may uh, probably are are already very familiar with PBMs, but just to level set, we're going to do a quick description. They're an intermediary between plans and pharmacies, and because of their size, they can often negotiate prices with the pharmacies or the drug companies to get better rates than the plan could by itself. They provide also administrative services like the operating the mail orders for medications, they process claims, they manage formularies, they provide specialty drug services. Um, think of the three largest, for example, Express Script, CVS, Optum X, you're probably familiar with. Yes. And logistically, this is how it works. So when a beneficiary of a prescription drug plan goes to a pharmacy to fill a prescription, the pharmacy will then check with the PBM to make sure that the person's coverage is, is there and the copayment amount. When the beneficiary leaves with his or her prescription, the PBM then reimburses the pharmacy for the prescription, less the amount, of course, of the copayment. Um, and then the prescription drug plan in turn will reimburse the PBM. So the amount a PBM reimburses a pharmacy for drug is not necessarily tied to how much the pharmacy paid to purchase that drug from the wholesaler. And this is an issue that comes up in some state regulation. Um, But in general, if you think of like brand name drugs, PBMs and pharmacies will negotiate a price tied to the drug's list price, usually the average wholesale price. But when it comes to generic drugs, PBMs generally set a reimbursement rate according to a list specifying their maximum allowable cost. They refer to that as MAC. And so, again, we'll talk about that more. Um, But uh, in terms of rebates, this is another issue that often comes up. They negotiate rebates with drug manufacturers and the extent to which the pharmacy discounts and the rebates are shared with the plans is really governed by their contract with the PBM. So that's that's kind of PBMs at a high level. Yeah, no, that's super helpful as we go into this uh, case here. But you mentioned that states regulate that uh, PBMs and that pharmacy payment process. Tell us a bit more about those state laws at a high level. Well, lawmakers right now are trying to deal with rising drug prices, and we certainly hear that at the federal level as well as the state level. And so they're looking at every aspect of the industry for answers for transparency in the pharmacy supply chain. And they're also increasingly starting to look at the PBMs in addition to the drug manufacturers because they are the middleman. The Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America estimates that there are 6 billion, that's with a B, prescriptions that are filled in the U.S. each year. And and of those, two-thirds of them are being processed by PBM. So you can see they're definitely a cog in the wheel and definitely an important player when it comes to um, filling drug prescriptions. So now nearly every state regulates PBMs in some way. What we have seen is that laws that govern PBMs pricing 
um, are those that are most likely to get challenged in a court. And so to date, there are at least five cases I'll refer to that in which the state laws of regulation of PBMs have been challenged. Two states, Maine and North Dakota, have declined to strike down the PBM regulations on the basis of ERISA preemption. In three other states, D.C., Iowa, and Arkansas, they all struck down the regulation of PBMs, on, again, on the basis of ERISA preemption. Yeah, so before we really dig into ERISA preemption, because that's a concept we want to understand better, let's talk a little bit about the state law that was at issue in the Supreme Court case, which, as you just said, was in Arkansas. Right. So the law was actually passed back in 2015, and they sought to govern the conduct of PBMs, partly in response to a trend in their state in which they saw fewer independent and rural serving pharmacies. Between 2006 and 2014 alone, there was a decrease by 13% of independent pharmacies. They were closing in that state. And so they saw this as an issue, in part because you will see that PBMs and pharmacies will require patients to use certain pharmacy chains, for example, and that's often carving out or, or not uh, excluding those smaller pharmacies. And so they are hurt by that. Again, you'll also see situations in which that maximum allowable cost that MAC and that PBM set um, actually harm pharmacies because the pharmacies might actually lose money on a prescription transaction. And so the act sought to address these situations as well as other situations where the pharmacies were being harmed in the eyes of the legislatures, I should say. So the law included mandates regarding the reimbursement for drug costs. They required the PBMs to update their MAC cost list and it included administrative appeal procedures. So more specifically as it relates to the generic drugs, it said that the pharmacies must be reimbursed at um, a price equal to or higher than their cost for the drug based on the invoice from the wholesaler. So again, that was trying to protect them from losing money on a, on a transaction cost based on the MAC price list. Then they went ahead and, and further imposed requirements on their use of that MAC list by requiring them to update the list within at least seven days from the time that there had been an increase in acquisition cost. And so PCMA, which is the Pharmacy Trade Association, filed lawsuit on behalf of its members, and they claimed, among other arguments, that the act was preempted by ERISA and by Medicare Part D. We won't go into the Medicare Part D portion. We will just focus on ERISA preemption. The district court agreed, and they said that ERISA did preempt some portions of the act. So that's what we want to discuss today. Yeah, so before we move on to the appeal, and we're going to kind of slowly uh, gain steam up to the Supreme Court here. But before we go on to the appeal, let's do a quick primer on ERISA preemption, because this is a term that you hear thrown around a lot and it's complicated and confusing. So just give us a high level overview of what, what is meant by ERISA preemption or what, what does that mean? Well, you're right. I mean, the term itself is, it is confusing. The lawsuits, if you read the case law, it's confusing. So um, in general, preemption means that something is to take its place because of a priority. So ERISA preemption means that ERISA has a pro higher priority than a similar state law. The idea behind ERISA preemption was that Congress wanted um, to promote uniformity in, in employee benefit plan administration. So they wanted at the federal level to have some uniformity and not have um, plans be dictated by state law. The problem with this is that the industry by federal law must be regulated by the states, not the federal government. So the strongest protections that we generally see for consumers are at the state law level. 
So what we we have now are two existing federal laws, one that states that uh, insurance must be governed by state law, and the other says uh, that ERISA plans must be governed by federal law. So a bit of tension there, uh, which makes things interesting. Yeah, that's definitely some tension, and you can see immediately how conflict would arise here. And so ERISA preemption is trying to help avoid that or at least come up with a solution to solve it and say, look, ERISA applies here, not the state law. Let's dig into how, how does ERISA preemption theory apply in a lawsuit? Well, it, ERISA specifically preempts state laws that, quote, relate to an employee benefit plan, and we'll dig into that in a moment. But remember that the insurance industry is regulated by the state, so the relate to issue does not apply to insurance laws because ERISA saves from preemption any state law regulating insurance. So as a result, ERISA will not preempt the application of a state insurance law to fully insured employee benefit plans. However, ERISA does not deem self-insured plans as being insurance. And so ERISA will preempt the application of a state insurance law to a self-insured employee benefit plan. And that is why we see ERISA preemption specifically applied in many of the, the self-insured contexts. Yeah, and that term relates to seems very broad and expansive. Um, so can you just explain a little bit more about um, how the Supreme Court, because this is not the first time the Supreme Court has looked at ERISA preemption. Explain to us how the Supreme Court has construed this idea of what it means to relate to an employee benefit plan. You're right. There's been more than 20 Supreme Court cases applying the relate to test, and still it's a fairly vague term. And it's, you know, that idea has really not been resolved. If you look back to the early cases, they really construed the relate to very expansively. So in Shaw v. Delta Airlines back in 1983, the Supreme Court held that the term relates to was to be given its broad common sense meaning such that a state law relates to an employee benefit plan in the normal sense of the phrase, if it has connection with or reference to such a plan. So extremely broad. They did say that a state law would survive ERISA preemption if the relationship between the state law and ERISA is tenuous, remote, or peripheral. Again, you know, not really instructive guidance. It's, it's these vague terms that are difficult to apply. And that's why we've seen so many cases still roll back up to um, the Supreme Court. There were a couple of other lawsuits that made it up to the Supreme Court. They're, they're called the Traveler's Trilogy, um, a set of three cases that tried to flesh out this idea. And they found that two categories of state laws that ERISA exempts are one, state laws that have a reference to ERISA plans. So if a state law acts immediately and exclusively upon ERISA plans, or if the existence of an ERISA plan is essential to the law's operation, that state law will be preempted. And then secondly, state laws that have an impermissible connection with ERISA plans. And here they said a state law that governs a central matter of plan administration would fail the test. So here, there we get a bit more guidance. So we're looking to plan administration. Um, again, what they established was a new test. And they said a state law has the requisite connection with an employee benefit plan for purposes of preemption only if it affects the plan structure or administration, it binds plans to certain choices, or it establishes alternative remedies that are in conflict, of course, with ERISA. So that gives us a little bit more guide rails to work with. But again, these cases continue to make it up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, so it seems like some vague terms trying to describe a vague term. 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> but it does feel like maybe they moved the ball a little bit down the road with uh, uh, that test. So, but this is getting very much into the weeds of ERISA preemption. And before we lose the audience here, how, how does this relate back to PBMs, kind of where we started and getting back to this case that's made yeah. to the Supreme Court? Well, great question, because PBMs are not themselves ERISA-covered plans as we think of them. Rather, they provide administrative services to ERISA-covered plans. They, as a practical matter, you can look at a PBM contract and they often supply plan terms. So if we want to get into the idea of what is an ERISA-covered plan, we can look to more Supreme Court cases. And I will just hit on this very briefly, just to show how it can be expanded to cover PBM agreements. And in Pegram v. Herdrich, and I think I said that correct, but if I said it incorrectly, it's H-E-R-D-R-I-C-H. Uh, the Supreme Court clarified what was meant by an ERISA-covered plan, and it said that one is left to the common understanding of the word plan as referring to a scheme decided upon in advance. So here, the scheme comprises a set of rules that define the rights of a beneficiary and provide for their enforcement. So rules that govern the collection of premiums, the definition of benefits, the submission of claims, the resolution of disagreements over entitlement to services are all sorts of provisions that constitute a plan. And the, the court went on to observe that the terms of the underlying insurance contract in that context could be relied upon to furnish some of the terms of the plan. And you can see how this would be expanded to an equal force to PBM agreements, because many times the terms of the agreement of a PBM agreement can be used to supply and flesh out a, a group plan's terms. Okay. That's Good explanation on that. Before we get to the Supreme Court, tell me how lower courts have looked at ERISA preemption when it comes to PBM laws, because there, there are a few of these cases out there already, right? Yeah, and I'll just focus on two, because it really shows the juxtaposition of the two views, I guess, of ERISA preemption and whether it should apply in the PBM context. If you look at the first circuit, that that is where the circuit in which Maine is. There was a challenge to Maine's PBM regulation. And in that circuit, the court upheld the PBM regulation because the court reasoned that the PBMs don't exercise discretionary authority. And they said that the PBM performed only ministerial duties and were therefore not principal players in the ERISA scenario. And they interpreted ERISA to only preempt state laws relating to the acts performed by ERISA fiduciaries. So if, if that was the case, I mean, that would certainly make a fairly easy um, guide rails to follow because we're all familiar with which players are ERISA fiduciary. The DC Circuit, on the other hand, held the exact opposite. It, it concluded that the laws regulating TPAs, such as PBMs, function as a regulation of the plan itself and the administration of the plan is a core ERISA concern. So because of this, they said that the that ERISA did preempt the DC PBM law. So you can see there that the one focused on the administration of the plan, one focused on whether the player was a fiduciary of the plan. And so thus we move on to Arkansas. And that was the Eighth Circuit that decided that case. Um, and again, in that case, PCMA, and that's the trade group, they challenged Arkansas's law that we discussed earlier on the premise that the role of the PBM is a plan service provider. And their claim was that by regulating PBMs, the act affected the plan structure or administration. They bound the plan to certain choices and they established alternative remedies. And therefore, the Arkansas PBM law should be preempted, meaning PBM should not be regulated in that state. Um, it was particularly confusing, though. I will say many scholars have, have 
felt like that circuit opinion was rather um, challenging um, and, and not well-founded because the state did specifically try to exempt self-funded ERISA plans from the law, but the court struck down the entire law rather than just ruling that it didn't apply to self-insured plans. So the appellate court noted that ERISA broadly preempts, quote, any and all state laws insofar as they may now or hereafter relate to any employee benefit plan. So quite broad. Um, and, and hence it moves on to the Supreme Court. Right. Okay. So moving on to the Supreme Court, uh, and we haven't talked much about timing on all this, but the Eighth Circuit's ruling was appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court granted the writ of certiorari on January 10th. 2020, so almost a year ago from now and right before the pandemic, right? Right, yes, and oral arguments were actually supposed to be heard early in the year and they were delayed until October. Um, the title of the case is actually Rutledge v. Pharmaceutical Care Management Association. Again, that's PCMA, the, the trade group. And it was actually ended up being argued on October 6th during the court's 2020 to 2021 term. The question before the court was, does ERISA preempt an Arkansas law regulating pharmacy benefit managers' drug reimbursement rates. Um, generally, that's what the question was. And the court found that the act was not preempted by ERISA. Interestingly, there was an eight to zero unanimous opinion of the court. Um, as we discussed earlier, the act did regulate the price at which the PBM reimbursed pharmacies for the cost of generic drugs. The court reiterated you know, the general standard that ERISA preempts state laws that relate to a covered employee benefit plan and a state law relates to a plan if it has a connection with a reference to the plan. However, they concluded that that act was neither, that it lacked a connection with the ERISA plan because it merely was a form of cost regulation and did not force plans to adopt any particular scheme of substantive coverage. Additionally, it's the court stated, it did not act immediately and exclusively on ERISA plans. It does apply to plans broadly, not just ERISA plans. Um, and, and it regulates those plans only incidentally as part of its regulations of PBMs generally. Okay, so before we unpack this just a little bit more, um, I wanted to say eight to zero was the unanimous opinion of the court because at that time there was not a ninth justice, correct? Right, she was not seated at that time, correct. Right, okay. Still unanimous, though, to, to be Still certain. unanimous. Yes, <laughs> we always we'll think do. of the Supreme Court as nine, and so I just wanted to clarify the right. you on that. So to unpack this just a little bit more, and we'll just walk through very quickly the arguments by PCMA. Um, they first argued that the enforcement provision in the act directly affected administration of the plan. And again, Justice Sotomayor did not find the requirements for any plan structure within the act. And so they, they struck down that argument. Um, PCMA argued that the act mandated a certain pricing methodology. Remember, as it pertained to generic drugs, they said that um, the plans must pay or the PBMs must pay at least the invoice price for the generics. And again, this was struck down. Um, Justice Sotomayor said that it merely established a floor for benefits, not as a central plan administration. And then finally, uh, the, I shouldn't say finally, but, but um, PCMA also argued that the act affected the central matters of plan administration in its appeal procedure. And again, that was struck down and they said that there was no burden from the appeal procedure. So all in all, it was struck down. Um, and so therefore the Arkansas law may stand and PBMs may be regulated by the state in Arkansas. Very interesting. And so Justice Sotomayor was, she authored the opinion on behalf of the unanimous court, but 
Um, Justice Thomas, who's an interesting character, always fun to watch in these cases, he filed a concurring opinion. Usually justices only do that if they're wanting to make some additional points. So what was the what was the uh, Justice Thomas's sort of uh, point in the concurring opinion? Yeah, I think this is instructive because it really shows how Justice Thomas thinks of ERISA preemption broadly. Um, and he said, he noted that the plain text of ERISA suggests a two-part preemption test. Number one, do any ERISA provisions govern the same matter as the state law at issue? And number two, does the state law have a meaningful relationship to the ERISA plan? And only if the answers to both are affirmative, does ERISA displace the state law? He then went on to say, but our precedents have veered from this text and have resulted in a vague and potentially boundless purposes and objectives preemption clause that relies on the general generalized notions of congressional purpose. And although that approach may allow courts to arrive at the correct result in individual cases, it offers little guidance or predictability, and we should instead apply the law as written. So there he, he uh, feels that ERISA preemption has gone a bit too broad. Yeah, so interesting insight. Uh, I think at a high level, you know, really trying to uh, look at it from a layman's point of view, you're really looking at does, does this state law really get to the core of what the plan is, or is it really impacting sort of the ancillary peripheral parts around the core part of the plan? Um, but this is, uh, you know, for, for PBMs, this is a, a big deal. What are the possible implications outside of the PBM context? Well, I will say that Grim Law has written an excellent article on this topic. So if you're interested, look up the Grim Law article on this uh, lawsuit. And they pointed out that this decision really narrowed the ERISA preemption. They were concerned that it would open up the door for increased legislation by states to uh, regulate the payments made by intermediaries on behalf of self-insured plans. And following this, they were concerned that there'd be more widespread adoption of legislation targeting other payment practices, not only PBMs, but also um, other providers like TPAs and that manage employer plans. And so this could have sort of a chilling effect on strategies that are used by employers and TPAs and PBMs to manage costs for self-funded plans. So again, I recommend reading that Groom uh, analysis of this uh, Supreme Court opinion, but it's interesting nonetheless. And so we will certainly watch for any state movement on uh, trying to regulate uh, self-insured plans and other aspects. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting case for self-insured plans, especially, right? They, I think the mindset for self-insured plans in the past has always been that they have this ERISA preemption. They don't really have to worry about these state laws a whole lot. And I think this opens the door um, for PBMs, TPAs, and then other laws that states may enact. And maybe it opens the door for state legislators to be more active because now they realize maybe they have a way in to regulate a bit more. Uh, but it's something slightly different than what um, uh, self-insured plans maybe uh, had to consider previously. So we will definitely continue to monitor this, monitor this issue and uh, track it and report on it as we come across it. But anything else you wanted to add there, Suzanne, as we no, close? I, I think Happy New Year. We're happy to be on to 2021. Uh, we will certainly watch, though, as I said, it, it will take time for states to um, to actually move any type of legislation, you know, on these other players in the industry. But we'll watch for that and certainly we'll report on it. Um, but in the meantime, we'll close this out. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for this great recap on this case and on ERISA preemption and on PBMs. Uh, this has been very instructive, so we appreciate it. And uh, as you like to say. That's a wrap. That's thank a wrap. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.